Well, if you have a Bible with you, open with me to Matthew chapter 5. My name is Dave Furman, and I have the joy and privilege of serving this church as one of the elders here. And if you've been here for the last month, we have been walking through what's called the Sermon on the Mount. These are the words of Jesus. These are a famous sermon that Jesus preached. And we find these words recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we've been walking through these words, albeit a bit slowly. We've been in a section of the sermon called the Beatitudes, or the the blessings of, of Jesus. And we've been looking at them one or maybe even two or three at a time. And today, we'll be looking at the next two Beatitudes, and we see those in verses seven and eight. Now, as we look at these Beatitudes, just remember again that these Beatitudes are not describing different types of of Christians. It's not that some Christians are the merciful ones and other Christians are those who mourn. Here's the group of the the poor in spirit or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, these characteristics as a whole describe the Christian. They describe the, the Christian, the one who's a new creation. And starting here in verse 7, the Beatitudes, they seem to turn a corner. The first four Beatitudes express in one way or another our dependence on God. The next ones show an outworking of that dependence. These last Beatitudes reveal the character of the transformed Christian. You could say the first four have a, have a bit of a vertical emphasis, focusing more on our relationship with God And these next Beatitudes, you could say, have more of a horizontal emphasis between us and our fellow man. Again, these Beatitudes are surprising. The world says, do these certain things and you will flourish. But Jesus takes what the world says and he turns them upside down. He says the complete opposite. He says, here's what the world says. Here's what I say. And they're totally opposed. Now, if you're taking notes, here's the overarching point this morning. When God radically transforms your heart, you must live out a radically transformed life. When God changes your heart, when God radically transforms your heart, you must live out a radically transformed life. And we see that in these next set of Beatitudes, today of which we'll take the next two. We'll see two fruits of God transforming our hearts, that a Christian is to be merciful and pure in heart. So let's take them one at a time. First, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful receive mercy. Well, what is mercy? In defining it, we could be helped by comparing it to grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. A sinner receiving an inheritance in heaven is getting grace. Mercy, however, is not getting what you do deserve. For instance, a sinner not facing eternal judgment is getting mercy. But mercy really is even more than that. Mercy has the idea of taking a a loving action toward the hurting. One man describes mercy as God's ministry to the miserable. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2. While we were dead in our trespasses, God, being rich in mercy, showered us with great love and made us alive together with him in Christ Jesus. 
And so what Jesus is saying here is, blessed are those who extend that same mercy. They're the ones who will then in turn will receive mercy. Now, this doesn't mean you can earn your salvation. We want to say that right up front. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's a gift. Whenever we read a verse in the Bible that seems maybe a little confusing at first glance, we always want to look at the context of the entire Bible. And in this case, we don't have to look very far. The, the Beatitudes as a whole show us that it is by grace you've been saved. It started with the very first one. It is the poor in spirit who receive the kingdom of heaven. The unmerciful won't receive mercy because they don't think they need it. He doesn't want mercy, therefore doesn't give it. But citizens of God's kingdom, we, we yearn for mercy. We, we desperately want God's mercy more than anything. We, we, we want it, we yearn for it, we desire it now on earth and later in heaven. And so we, in turn, we lavishly show mercy to others, even at great cost to ourselves. Now, when I think of mercy, I often think of the Good Samaritan, Now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells about an expert in the law who doesn't like Jesus' claim that in order to inherit eternal life, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't like that. He feels like it's too steep a price. It's too difficult a requirement. He doesn't like it. And so he tries to trap Jesus with a question. He asks, who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers with what's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, that phrase doesn't actually occur anywhere in Scripture or anywhere in that parable. And for those who are listening, that phrase would have been an oxymoron. It's a combination of words that doesn't make sense. For the Jews at that time, it would have been thought that the the only Good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. That's the kind of hostility that existed between the two groups. Well, the parable goes, the story goes, a man was traveling down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and some robbers attack this Jew and they, they beat him up, they wrestle him to the ground, they take all of his valuables, his belongings, his money, his clothes, and he's left there on the side of the road, bloodied, perhaps in a coma, he can't move. But he's not alone, help is on the way, or so it seemed. A priest comes down the road. Now, this is good. We think, here's, here's a priest. Here's a, a leader in the religious community. We, we think, okay, here's the, the rescuer. He's on his way. But, but the priest sees this man from afar, and he actually walks to the complete other side of the road and walks past him. Well, then a Levite comes, and now we think, okay, it's a Levite. Maybe, maybe this is like a deacon, a leader in the church. And the Levite comes, but he does the exact same thing. He walks to the other side of the road and just passes on by. I mean, this would have been shocking to these listeners, but perhaps these two religious men had a schedule to keep. They had a diary full of people who needed them. Religious things had to get done, disciple appointments to keep, sermon preparation, verses to memorize, prayers to be prayed. Maybe the two of them were headed to a pastor's convention in the city, and they were running late. Who could really expect them to risk becoming ritually unclean anyway? Because you see, for the two of them, especially for the priest, for them to touch this man and find out he was dead, well, that would have messed up their day or maybe even their week having to go through all kinds of cleanliness rituals. 
They would have missed all kinds of things, maybe some appointments. Well, whatever the reason, we don't know. The, the two men just walk on by. But then comes along the despised, the not worth anything, the good for nothing Samaritan. This was the lowest of the low of the low. Now, what would the original listeners expect him to do? Now, remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They'd at at the very least expect the Samaritan to follow the way of the priest or of the Levite. Probably, even worse, they'd expect him to give the Jew a little extra kick while he was down. But there's something different about this man. The, The mere sight of this victim filled him with mercy. He rushed over to him, not to kick him, not even just to wish him well, but he actually goes and he picks up the Jew. He touches him, he picks him up, and he puts him on his donkey, and he takes him to a hotel, checks him in, cleans him up, takes care of him, watches that night and that next day, and then upon leaving, leaves money to the hotel manager. And not just the money to take care of him, gives him extra money for future needs, and even makes a promise to the manager saying, when I return, if there's extra costs, I'm going to pay those for this Jew as well. I mean, unbelievable. Now, Jesus is just rubbing it in. No one would have expected this. No one would have expected the Samaritan to do this. And then after that parable, after telling that story, Jesus says, now, which of these three was a true neighbor? Well, there's only one answer. It was the one they least expected. Now, let me make two statements about mercy as we consider this beatitude this morning. Just two statements. First, we show mercy to our neighbor no matter their ethnicity and without regard to their social qualifications. We as Christians, we as those who have been saved by Jesus, we show mercy to our neighbor regardless of their ethnicity and without regard to any social qualifications. Now, this religious teacher there in the parable, when Jesus asked that question, he couldn't even within himself say the word Samaritan. That's the hatred between the two groups. In asking the question, though, who's your neighbor, What Jesus is really asking is, to whom will you be a neighbor to? And Jesus says you're to be a neighbor to everyone, to anyone. And the scope of Jesus' mission is unlimited. It's a mission for everyone, to everyone. Well, the point is we don't just extend mercy to people who are like us or people who we like, especially people we understand or admire or whom we perceive to be in our social class. There's no place for classism or racism among the followers of Christ. There's no such thing as a racist Christian. And yet our world is filled with racism, isn't it? It's heartbreaking to hear stories of people scolded or verbally abused by those who think they're ethnically superior. No, this is sin. Redeemer Church, this is wicked. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been harassed because of your ethnicity. Or if not, maybe you feel disadvantaged because of your passport, because of the color of your skin. Maybe there are times that you 
don't get what you need, don't get what you want because of what it says on your passport. That's you, friends. I, 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 I weep with you. And I want us all to hear this. Redeemer Church, I want us to hear this. Christians don't do this. Christians don't do this. The church is different. We don't disparage someone because of their passport. We don't give extra help to someone simply based on their skin color or passport country. You can't follow Christ and live in unrepentant racism. Why? Well, it's because the cross of Christ breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. It's broken. It is done. It is crashed down. And we as Christians are all citizens of another kingdom. Do you you, you get that? We share the same eternal passport. We have the same one. We don't have a caste system in Christianity. We don't tell and share in jokes that tear down an ethnicity. We don't show partiality in the church to certain nations. There aren't certain ministry roles that are relegated to certain people groups. Redeemer Church, every single man, every single woman, every single child is made in the image of God. You might be thinking, well, Pastor Dave, I'm not not a racist. It's not just overt racism here. You may be saying, well, I'm not a racist, but do you struggle with ethnocentrism, prejudice, favoritism? That means that deep down in your heart, you think your worldview and culture is central or better than others. Well, how do you know if you struggle with this sin? Well, you might ask yourself these questions. Who are the people I invite into my home? Who are the people I'm with in pictures on my phone? Well, do I roll my eyes and complain about the way they do things? Do I mock the way they drive or the way they behave at school or the way they dress? Do I give preferential treatment to certain people in my business deals? Do I deal fairly with my employees from different nationalities? Now, we can certainly have friends from our home countries. That's, that's great. That's That's wonderful. But the church of Jesus Christ goes beyond this because we are adopted into God's family, which means for the Christians in this room, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are closer together than biological family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are saved by the same God through the same Savior and have the same spirit living within us. And so having mercy on your neighbor has no ethnic, no behavioral, and no social qualifications. Well, here's a second statement I want to make about mercy. That's the first one. Here's a second statement about mercy. We show mercy on our neighbor. We share mercy on our neighbor, even if it involves risk and personal loss. We extend mercy to our neighbor, even when it costs us. The the Samaritan gives up an enormous amount. He gives up his money, his time, his plans for the week. He risks his life. Those robbers could have still been around. Now, mercy bears another's burdens. And to do that, part of the burden has to fall on you. That's that's what it means to, to bear a burden. It means some of the weight of the pain of the situation, of the circumstance falls on you. There's effort. There's pain involved. 
You might miss out on rest or sleep. You might have to postpone things in your life, reevaluate your budget. The merciful person gives up these things they love because their needs are already met in Christ. 1 John 3 says it best. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no mercy on him, how can the love of God be in him? That's hard. Well, friend, you might be thinking right now, it's, it's, it's hot in here. It's getting hot in here. Did they turn off the air conditioning? All this is making me feel guilty. Now, sometimes the AC doesn't quite work properly in here. But I promise we're not doing it intentionally on our part. But this is convicting, isn't it? This is convicting. And we all struggle with extending mercy, don't we? And yet, Micah 6 commands us to love mercy. Luke 6 commands us to show mercy. How do we do this? How can anyone have this kind of power to be merciful? Well, you have to continually look at the costliness of God's mercy towards you. We have to continually look at the cross because unless we're looking at the cross, we won't be merciful to other people. We have to see that the forgiveness of our sins was costly, that Jesus Christ was cut off from God the Father. Now, for the sake of illustration, just imagine you're walking down the street. Someone comes up to you on the street, says that they they hate you. Well, that's going to hurt. Talked about racism earlier. If it's if it's racial, that's that's gonna that's gonna hurt you. But it's a stranger, so it's gonna hurt you for a while. You'll feel bad. But imagine one of your children coming up to you and and saying that they hate you and they never want to see you again. Or imagine then your best friend, or if you're married, your spouse. Imagine them coming up to you saying that they hate you and they never want to see you again. I mean, you see, the more loving and more joyful and more wonderful a relationship, the more devastating it is when you're cut off. God the Son enjoyed perfect fellowship with God the Father for all eternity. But in order to reconcile us to the Father, the Son of God was willingly cut off from him for our sake. For our sake, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. It was there on the cross. Remember that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross was a costly love. But it's not as if on the cross the Trinity was broken or dissolved. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit weren't, as one scholar has said, the Trinity's dissolution, but it was the Trinity's demonstration. Because on the cross we see the Father and we see the Son and we see the Spirit working together in concert for the salvation of the world. It was the Father's love that sent his one and only Son to die on the cross. It was the Spirit's love who executed everything from Jesus' conception in Mary's womb all the way to empowering Jesus until his last breath. And it was the Son of God's love, it was Jesus' love that led him to set his heart and way towards Jerusalem and to march to the cross, giving his life freely for his people. Well, Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan because while we were his enemies, he died for us. While we were his enemy, his wounds marred his body. His life was mocked by scoffers. His body crushed for our iniquities. His limbs wounded for our transgressions. For undeserving sinners like you and me.
That's mercy. Friend, if you're here and you've never tasted that sweet mercy, maybe you're new to the church, you're hearing this, maybe you can't even believe this good news. Oh, friend, we urge you to embrace this mercy. God has not left you in your sin. Your sin may have separated you from God. You may deserve death and judgment, but oh, there is good news. His mercy is more. Turn to Christ, turning from your sin, trust in him to save you. You and I deserve the death Jesus went through for our sins, but in mercy, in mercy, Jesus died in your place if you turned to him. And fellow Christian, fellow brother and sister in Christ, fellow family member, Think about the mercy of Christ, and it will spur you on to mercy to others. That's the only way. That's where our power comes from. Now, one of the reasons we're not merciful, if you go about your day and you're not merciful, one of the main reasons you're not merciful is because you're spending all your time looking at yourself and your needs and your wants and your desires, and you're not looking to Jesus. Look to Christ instead. If you look to Christ, it will overflow in mercy to others in a number of ways. I want to give us just seven brief ways we as Christians can extend mercy to others. We don't always have long lists like this, but I want to pause. I don't want to just skip over the implications and the application to mercy in our midst, but I want to pause and reflect on ways that we as a church, ways that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can extend, can and should extend mercy to others. So just seven ways briefly. Number one, As Christians, we're merciful by praying for others. Praying for others is a beautiful picture of mercy. We take time from our own interests to talk to the God of the universe on behalf of someone else. A prayer is the ultimate selfless act. Well, number two, we're merciful by sharing the gospel with non-believers evangelism is the greatest mercy ministry. Have you ever thought about it like that? Evangelism is mercy because the non-believer is under the threat of the judgment they deserve. And it's mercy because it may be costly to you. You may be mocked. You may even be persecuted. It takes time to do it. It may be awkward. A fourth century preacher, John Chrysostom, once said, We will help a beast that has fallen under a burden. Shall we then not extend relief to those who are fallen under a worse burden of sin? I'm often asked, what does mercy ministry look like in the church? Well, there are a lot of things we can do. I'll give us a few more in just a moment. But the greatest mercy ministry is for each of us to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. This is also why we preach the gospel in every single one of our church services. This is part of our church's mercy ministry. Well, number three, as Christians, we're merciful by overlooking the offenses of others. We overlook the offenses of others. Christians don't hold grudges. Christians don't grow in bitterness. We look to the cross and our hearts melt towards others, even those who've wronged us. Our forgiveness doesn't depend on whether they deserve it or not. That's why it's mercy. Mercy is not loving others because they first loved us. It's loving others because God first loved us. Number four, we're merciful by confronting one another in sin. 
Rebuking someone in love for their sin is showing mercy. As a church, church discipline is the greatest act of mercy we can show an unrepentant sinner. It's a great act of love, great act of mercy. It takes work on our end. It takes heartache. It's a lot of conversations, a lot of meetings, a lot of prayer. But we do it because we want to win back that unrepentant sinner. They may not deserve it, but we do it out of love. We pursue them in prayer, and we pursue them, reaching out to them, because God has loved us. Number five, as Christians, we are merciful by giving to the poor, by giving to those who are hurting financially. And so we as Christians, we look out for the needs around us. We help the hungry. We give to orphans. We help with adoptions. We care for the widows. We also give to our benevolence offering. We take it up as a church once a month during communion, and we will later today. Our deacon of benevolence, Craig Plum, works hard to help pass along financial help to those in our church in need. So we give to those who are hurting. Number six, We're merciful with our words. This is a hard one for many of us. It's hard for me. But Christians are to be tender when talking to people. We're also kind when we're talking about people. As one Puritan said, it's a great cruelty to murder a man in his name. Now, mercy speaks well of all, even to the slanderer who doesn't deserve it. That's mercy. Number seven, we're merciful by reaching out to the new or to the lonely. Now, let me speak to the kids and the youth who are here in the service. I see several of you scattered throughout the room to our kids, preteens, teenagers. Here's one way you can do this. Here's one great way for you to show mercy. You reach out to the kids who are left out. You reach out to the kids that are kind of mean, You reach out to the kids that you think don't deserve your attention. If if you're homeschooled, maybe you can be inclusive in your activities with any of your siblings, even if they hurt your feelings. Maybe when you're hanging out with your friends, you can look for those who aren't being looked after. If you leave home and attend school, you can look to encourage the lonely kid, the hurting kid, the new kid, the mean kid. I know an elementary school student who wrote a a welcome note to to the new kid. And even at the expense of leaving her current friends, is seeking to pursue that new friend on the playground and encouraging and helping her. Now, mercy is always inviting. Mercy always opens up its arms to everyone. It looks out for new moms regularly. It looks out for the singles during the holidays. It introduces themselves to the new person here on Fridays. It works to care for the person that may have crushed our reputations. It reaches out to the person who has offended us. That's mercy. Redeemer Church, imagine a community. Imagine if we were a community where everyone was quick to forgive. Imagine if we were a community that showed costly love, one that cares for the hurting, one that cares for the offensive. Can you imagine what our congregation would look like if each and every one of us was marked by mercy? Well, this has to mark us because when God radically transforms our hearts, we live out a radically transformed life. We will be a people of mercy. Verse 7. Well, if God radically transforms our heart, we're also going to live a life that exhibits a purity of heart. That's the second beatitude we want to look at this morning. That's verse 8. 
So Christians are merciful. Christians are also pure in heart. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a promise. What a delightful promise. Well, what does it mean to be pure? Well, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And we can make that distinctly Christian and say purity of heart is to will, to desire, to strive for one thing, namely the glory of God above all things. It's a single-mindedness. It means your whole life has a single objective, a single trajectory. It's unmixed. It's what we saw Robin read for us from Psalm 24 earlier in the service. Someone who follows God has clean hands and a pure heart. He doesn't lift his soul to what is false. A pure heart pursues only what's true. It's after one thing. Now, in English, it's a little confusing to us because when we say heart, we're typically meaning the emotions, maybe someone's passions or someone's feelings, but that's not the way the Bible talks about the heart. The Bible says the heart is the root of all of life. It's our thoughts, it's our feelings, it's our passions, it's our actions. It's really everything about us. It's from the heart that you want things and you think and you feel and you do. Well, so how do, we, how, how do we get purity of heart? How are we doing with this beatitude? Well, here's a few questions you can ask yourself to, to diagnose how you're doing with this one. Here's one. What do you want more than anything else? Is it God or is it something else? What do you think about when you have nothing you have to think about? What do you think about when there's nothing else you've got to do? Well, here's another way to put it. What do you daydream about? What rises up to the forefront of your mind? Are you fighting for pure thoughts? Are you praying like King David, create in me a clean heart, O God? Because purity of heart is not an external holiness. The Pharisees, they looked good. Remember, they were praying in the synagogues, in the street corners. They were giving. They were fasting. They were doing all these external things. They looked good, maybe to the outsider, but we know that Jesus said they were like whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but they were like dead bones on the inside. See, outward purity is never enough. A clean cockroach is still a cockroach. A rat is a rat. No matter how much you dress it up in little cute clothes and makeup, it's still a rat. So you can stay off pornography, but friend, what are you thinking about? You don't steal or gamble money. What are you dreaming about? What are you thinking about with regards to the future? You don't do anything unethical to build your career, but are you envious of your coworkers? Well, purity extends to all of life, not just our actions, but our thoughts, our feelings, our ambitions. D definitions of what is pure and what brings cleanliness, it differs in our various cultures. Other world religions define cleanliness by external matters. That's why you see people washing their feet for ablutions. Every religion has purity rituals. But Christianity's purity is a ritual of the heart. 
You're clean when your heart is clean. And Jesus is making an astounding promise here. I, I love this promise. He says that the pure in heart shall see God. It's an interesting promise because in the Old Testament, men, women, children, humans weren't allowed to see the face of God. The scriptures actually warn that no man can see God and live. It's always a partial vision. So you have Moses there in the Pentateuch, and you have Moses witnessing God's astounding miracles in Egypt. God speaks them audibly through the burning bush, so he hears God. He sees God turn the Nile into blood. He sees the various miraculous plagues that God brings. He tastes manna from heaven. God provided this food, and he tastes it, and he sees it. In the Exodus there, he sees the Pharaoh's the Pharaoh's chariots engulfed by the Red Sea. He sees God's miraculous work. He hears God, but he wasn't satisfied. And we see that Moses wanted more. And he actually says to God, let me see your face. Makes a request of God. Let me see you. Let me see your face. And God denies his request. Now, all he was able to do was see God's back. But even that was enough for the Israelites to shrink back at seeing him when he came down the mountain. They shrink back in terror when they see the glow on Moses' face. It was too radiant to look at directly. Moses had come so close to seeing God, so close to God that he was reflecting his glory. And that was from being in the presence of God and seeing the back of God for a short time. Author R.C. Sproul writes that the final goal of every Christian is to be allowed to see what was denied to Moses. We want to see him face to face. We want to bask in the radiant glory of his divine countenance. Oh, friend, is this what you want more than anything else in the world? Is this what you value more than anything else this world has to offer? Do you want to see God, to behold him face to face? Because, friends, there is no more glorious sight than that. There's never been a more glorious thought or a more glorious sight than beholding God face to face. Oh, friend, this is what helps us get through difficult times. We agree with one. One pastor has said, one half hour in glory will make us forget our pain. The dark shadows of the night shall fly away. Oh, friends, the pure in heart will see God. This is certainly a promise to see him, but it's even more than physical vision. After all, in this time, people could see Jesus, the Son of God. To see God is to encounter and to experience and to know God in the deepest most intimate way possible. It's not just to see God with your eyes, but to see him with your heart. We get a taste of it now. In a real sense, when you're walking with Jesus, you're experiencing God in a special way. You've probably noticed this when you're having sweet devotional times, you're reading your Bible, you're enjoying prayer time, you're fighting sin well, you're active in the church, and things are going well with your relationship with him. You feel this closeness with him. You feel like you're experiencing a close relationship with God. We also experience God among his people now when we gather together as a church. And in a real sense, God is with us. God is in our midst when we gather. But, oh, friend, we will experience God fully in heaven. In heaven, we will see God and we will experience him in all his fullness. And there will be nothing better. 
because we know that heaven will be a place of infinite joy and infinite gladness, your dream day never ending. It's a place where pain is not even allowed in. It can't get through the front gates. The temptation of sin is gone. Fears and insecurities gone. Economic woes are gone. There will be no night in this place, and there will be no death. There will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control overflowing. And best of all, there will be unbroken fellowship with God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He will be our all in all. Our great God will be our one consuming passion. We will see God and we will want nothing else. We will behold him face to face and we will want nothing else. Oh, Redeemer Church, let this hope be on our hearts and minds as we go about our week and we go about our life. Oh, let this be the meditation of our hearts. And let it be on our hearts and minds now as in just a few minutes we are going to celebrate communion together as a church. Now taking the Lord's Supper is a way to behold Jesus together because it is Jesus himself who welcomes us to the supper with grace and mercy. Let it remind us of our future hope. This meal we're about to take, it's a tiny little shadow. It is a shadow, but it's a tiny little taste, a tiny type of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that communion table will never end. It's a communion meal that will last forever. And until then, we eagerly await that day. The exciting thing is Jesus eagerly awaits for that day too. At the last supper with the disciples before his death, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, what Jesus is saying is he's looking forward to sharing a special meal with his disciples once again in the coming kingdom. And so we as Christians, we wait. And we wait with hope. And Jesus also waits. But a day is coming. It will come. And until then, Redeemer Church, let us be a merciful people. And until then, let us be a people who are pure in heart. Let us be a people who are preparing our hearts for eternity. We can start by preparing our hearts now for communion today. Well, friends, this meal we're about to partake is a special thing. And God gives us instructions on how and who to partake in it. In 1 Corinthians 11, let me read to you that Paul states that only followers of Jesus should partake in this meal. Hear these words. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Well, friends, if you've repented of your sin and you believe in the same gospel that you've heard me preach here today, we invite you to participate in this meal. Uh, But if not, we encourage you to let the bread and let the cup pass you by. And if you do profess faith in Jesus and are joined to his church, but you're engaging in some unrepentant sin, we also encourage you to let the bread and let the cup pass you by. As the scripture uh, warns that there are severe consequences for those who take part in this meal, which symbolizes a unity in Christ, yet at the same time, holding on to some sin, which divides the body of Christ. 
Use this time instead to repent of your sin and seek the unity that comes through Christ's forgiveness and grace. Well, now before we take part, let's take a moment in silent reflection by ourselves to see if we might take part in the Lord's Supper in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's do that right now. Well, Father, we come before you as those in need of mercy and grace. We pray that as a church, we would understand the depth of our idolatry and the glory of your forgiveness. Would we reorient our lives, forsaking everything this world has to offer for the sake of knowing Christ? And may this bread and may this cup nourish our souls as we remember the hope that we have in Jesus. With this small taste of our eternal feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb, would it give us hope today to get us through whatever we're going through? Would it give us strength and power to extend mercy to a dying world? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.